Hello and welcome to Tonebender Sound Design Podcast, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today. I'm sitting in Mark Mangini's sound room. Pleasure to be here, Tim. Thank you awesome. for having me. Thanks for being on Tonebenders and welcoming me into your space for this talk. We're going to talk about a new documentary that Mark worked on called 32 Sounds. But first, I, w- I want to tell Mark a quick story. When I was seven years old, the movie E.T. came out and my parents took me to see it and it was my first cinematic experience. The movie completely overwhelmed me. I'd never been so scared and excited at the same time before. I think E.T. was basically one of my first real experiences with stress. And uh, after the movie was over, I felt like a different person and we walked out to our car in the parking lot and that night there happened to be a full moon Full Moon's featured in the film. Of course. And I just, in the parking lot, broke in down into tears. And I can, it's one of my earliest memories, is just losing myself in this, um, the emotions of that film. And I felt like that movie was made for me. Mm. Like it was this super personal experience, even though I was in a cinema full of people. Right. And when you really... Did you cry in that in the cinema? I don't remember crying. I assume I did. I did. I, I assume I did. I don't remember that. I remember the tears in the parking lot. But as you get older, that feeling of this is made just for me happens less and less to you. Okay. You know, you, you realize that films are all based on the ones that came before it, so they don't come at you as, as, as new as those first films you get to see. Yeah. Also, your personal tastes start to narrow as you get older sure. sometimes. About 15 years ago, a film called Scott Pilgrim vs. the World came Love out. that movie. And yeah. I had a very similar feeling. It's shot in Toronto. It takes place in the clubs I went to. It's a, with all the musicians that I grew up adoring and some of them I knew personally. Mm. And when I left that theater, I again felt like that movie was made for me. I was positive it was going to be a huge hit and it actually wasn't that big a hit, even though I really loved it. <laughs> It doesn't mean it's not a great film. Yeah, exactly. I love it. But probably since then, watching 32 Sounds is the first time that that's happened to me again. There's lots of films recently that have been made about how sound works in the sound community and how films are made with sound. And for sound people, those are great to see, you know, our colleagues up on the big screen. But we already know everything, you know. But 32 Sounds isn't about making sound for movies. It's about life more than it is about sound. Yes. And it's a beautiful film. One of the people from one of my favorite bands did the score, also in the movie as a main character. It also zeroes in on a peculiar thing that I love, which is watching people put on headphones and listen to something. And their faces, when you can't hear what they're hearing, and their faces are showing all the emotions of what they're hearing. And this film has multiple scenes where we sit and watch someone listen to something. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Some of the scenes are really happy. Some of them are heartbreakingly sad. Yeah. That really touched me getting to watch those scenes. You saw uh, yourself in those people. Exactly, surely. exactly. And I'm wondering when you first watched through this film, what reached out to you? What reached out to me was the kind of meta level that it was working on before I had my series of lengthy discussions with Sam Green over the course of two years, I thought this was going to be literally about 32 sounds. But it isn't about 32 sounds. It's a kind of, it's an excuse to introduce much bigger ideas. It's a portal, in fact, to get anyone who views the film to examine their relationship with sound in their lives and how sound affects us, how it transports us, how it affects us emotionally. And those bigger themes were just that much more interesting to me because I feel, as a sound designer, those are the kinds of lessons that I've learned over 48 years and those are the lessons I kind of try to teach. 
to young sound designers, which is find the narrative value in sound, and that's that's your solution to a challenge, the creative challenge that you're confronted with. It's it's so not about plugins and kilohertz and speaker dispersion patterns. It's about these bigger ideas of what does sound mean to us and, and how do we interpret that? It's really beautiful. There's one scene where our director, who is acting as the boom man in that scene, is filming a woman who I can't remember the name of right now. Ania Lockwood. Ania is Lockwood, the, is the yes. name of the artist. Yeah. Indeed. She invites the director over to listen to what hydrophones are recording in the swamp beneath them. Yep. And uh, it's a beautiful moment where we just get to watch him listen to something that he was not expecting at all. She's an interesting human being because she, I think, embodies everything that you and I as sound artists identify with, which is there's this sonic world that even if it's hidden because it's inside a lake or a stream, it's there and we recognize that we are a part of it. And she uses this lovely expression, we're listening with them. We're listening with the train, we're listening with the frogs, we're listening with the fish and the various fauna underneath or inside of that river, and that we're all part of a, an ecosystem. I just found that really beautiful. Another moment that really touched me is we only are introduced to him through a Chiron on the bottom of the screen. I believe it was Fred Moten. He talks about the idea of ghost sounds. Yeah. And it's really <laughs> ama amazing and touching because he talks about how he can remember people through their voices people who have passed away. Yeah. And as he's telling the story, as a viewer, you have no choice but to start thinking about your grandmother's voice. And How much do I remember? Those disembodied. I loved that dialogue he goes through with himself, which is they're there, but they're not quite there because you know you're hearing them, but you know it's not actually sound, but it's in your brain somehow. And don't we all do that? Doesn't it invite the audience to think about that in a more critical way, like we all do that, but we never think about it. We don't intellectualize sound. In fact, I think sound is a subservient sense. We are predominantly visually literate creatures. In fact, if you look at the way the brain processes signals, visual information takes up more bandwidth if our brain were a computer than audio signal does. And so sound takes this kind of backseat, but that's what makes it so much more powerful because it's sneaking in the back door and affecting you some way, and sometimes in some ways that you're not even aware of, but maybe we should be aware of. Whose voice do you have ghost sounds with? My immediate family, that, that seems an obvious one. We're so touched by our families. My, my father passed away just a couple of years ago and I, I hear him in my head speaking or I can remember him giving us advice as kids gathered around the dinner table. I had all those personal and emotive moments when I heard Fred talk about this. I mean, I was aware of it, but he made me that much more aware of it by giving it a voice, by kind of explaining it in ways that I hadn't really thought of. Yeah, it was really beautiful. I immediately thought of one of my grandmothers. She was agoraphobic. She didn't like going out in public. And that's what we thought until she ended up getting sick enough that she had to go into an old folks home. Oh. And we thought it was going to be a disaster. And the first time I went to visit her after she'd been there for a couple of weeks, and she was playing pinochle with a bunch of old guys, having a great time, and she smoked, but you had to smoke outside. So I walked with her to go outside, and apparently she was the only woman in the old folks' home that smoked. So all the guys knew her because it was all guys out there. She was the only woman. So she walked out, and, Fran, what's up? And I was just like, who is this woman? Like, she was so quiet, and that space really brought out. So it made me think of that time when she was suddenly talking to all the other old smokers. What an epiphany. Did yeah. you ask her, what changed, Grandma? Like, well, I, I thought you were agoraphobic. <laughs> Seriously? I think it just, she was forced to 
overcome it, I guess, and she'd never been forced to do it before. But I asked her about it and she said, I like it here. It was her answer. So I don't know, maybe she didn't like it the way she was before. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about, although this film is called 32 Sounds, there's kind of a really great moment that illustrates the the strength of when sound and picture collide. Mm. Throughout the film, there are many times where, as viewers, we're asked to close our eyes. And there's a scene where we're introduced to an artist who does art on a rooftop during an actual war. And we are close our eyes and we're listening to him do his thing. And there is distance explosions. Yeah. And then at one point, there's a closer explosion. Yeah. And the screen, even though our eyes are closed, flashes white. Mm. And it made me jump. <laughs> it was a really excellent way to play with that form and give us visual stimuli even though our eyes were closed. Was that planned the whole time when it came to you? Did it have that, the whites? Sam had this film visually and editorially worked out. The only thing that wasn't worked out was the dance montage where we all get to get up and boogie. <laughs> because he, he wasn't even sure if we were going to get Donna Summer. So that, that was... The song. Yeah, 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 that was still uh, in discussion. But yeah, the, that was there and that's his recording. I mean, that, 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 that's such a powerful thing. There's something so beautiful about this film when it asks you to close your eyes because it puts you in another space. I mean, I think you get closer to the artist's experience when you do close your eyes because if you don't, you find yourself looking around the room and you're not as engaged or as, or even as immersed. And then your mind starts to think, oh my God, the next bomb could be on him. It's a powerful experience. And clever for Sam to, to do that, even though we have our eyes closed, we do have a sense of uh, light and dark. And so yes, you would get that little bit of fluttering and it is timed to this sort of reverberate, the concussion of the, of the explosion, so it's quite effective. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, that was one of those moments that Sam and I talked about early on in production while he, I was an advisor to Sam as he was shooting the film. And that was w one of the moments that prompted an early discussion with Sam because the first iteration was a headphone version of the film. And we wanted to feel the danger of the explosions. And I said to Sam, if we're gonna be in headphones, we're gonna miss all that subwoofer. And he didn't know even know what subwoofer was. He didn't know what LFE meant. And thus begat a conversation about how do we impart that feeling when we take it on the road and we're not in a cinema and we're on headphones and that beget discussions of how do we mix it, how do we bust to a subwoofer speaker that we're gonna carry around and augment the headphone experience with, which was kind of this one-off touring, you know, kind of show that we had developed that nobody had actually ever done before. So that was one of the reasons why we brought a subwoofer everywhere we went. So you could have that experience. So yeah, we should talk about this. We, we've talked about specific moments in the film, but let's talk about kind of the idea of how the film is to be screened. Right, might even be literally the first shot of the film, we see a Neumann head microphone <laughs> and we're told to put on headphones. Right. So that makes it immediately a different experience at the cinema or at your house. Normally, you're mm. not told to do that, obviously. Right. Knowing that, how did that affect your approach to working on the film and I guess even the mix of the film? The beauty about that is that I actually have to kind of flip it around. Sam called me while he was making the movie and still contemplating it. In an early stage, it wasn't 32 sounds. It might have been less sounds, but it became 32 sounds as a riff on the Glenn Gould 32, I forget the name of the 32 short films about Glenn Gould. And we started talking about the subwoofer, a scene he had already shot, and 
I, that I, probably would be the scene of the New York City guy yeah, playing Phil Collins Mr. in the yeah, middle of the night. Mr. Garcia, yeah. which yeah. is a great scene. And I had worked on one prior documentary film, and it shocked me. It was a film about Kobe Bryant's career. It's called Season 20. It has not been released yet. And here is an environment that screams for immersive audio, and yet the filmmakers were shooting with a mono shotgun mic, like every documentary filmmaker does. And I asked Sam, what are you doing immersively? And he said... What do you mean? And that began the discussions of, we got to talk about ambisonic recording. We got to talk about stereo recording. We have to talk about binaural recording. And when I described binaural recording, it reminded me of the Simon McBurney piece where Simon does something similar. He's on stage with the Neumann dummy head and he's working that in a live performance. And he started to realize that he had been approaching his filmmaking, perhaps not in a way that best followed through on his ideas about sound. So I had a very early impact on how he would shoot and capture his film. So all the dummy head stuff was post my arrival on the film. He didn't know what binaural was. He didn't know what ambisonic was. And subsequently, he would capture everything after that as he was shooting with a dummy head out, first order ambisonic mic out, so that we had all these options to do immersive audio in post-production. So where was the film mixed? Right there. Okay, that's what I was wondering. He and I both on headphones. We did the headphone mix first, and we did the theatrical 7-1 mix last. How did you find the difference between those two? Oh, boy. Um, The hardest part was the... Well, there was no hardest part. (laughs) They're so dramatically different. Going to the speaker-based theatrical mix, I had to find a way to reproduce 360-degree binaural because we had shot a, a number of scenes binaurally, and binaural doesn't reproduce over loudspeakers. But by and large, binaural is a two-channel headphone experience that begats a true 360-degree environment that planar speakers, you know, speakers on flat planes on walls cannot reproduce. So I could come close in a traditional immersive sense of, I can move those things around the room, but they'll never feel truly immersive and you'll never get the true proximity effect that you get with binaural. But I did my best. And so that was a steep learning curve for me. I'd never had to interpret a mix that way, nor had I ever done a headphone mix of any kind in 48 years. So I was learning on the job and I got the privilege of having my director watch me stumble and grow and learn together. But uh, he's just a great man, and he, he loved watching that happen in front of him. So how did you hook up with him? Interestingly, a very good friend of mine who introduced me to Kobe Bryant for the, the Kobe Bryant basketball movie is a friend of his, and he and I developed a relationship. The Kobe Bryant movie I've been on for six years and it's still not out. Needless to say, his passing begat a whole new rethink that they're, they're in the middle of. But that producer, as we became good friends and he saw the, the value that I was adding to that film, he, he said to me one day, I have a guy that you got to meet. And he didn't know Sam was making 32 sounds. He just thought, here's a filmmaker that will get you and vice versa. And so Sam and I just had a, a chat over the phone one day. He's in New York. I'm in Los Angeles. And a couple months later, as he's making this movie, he just rung me and he said, hey, Mark, can I just, can I give you some money and just call you every, every now and again and we can just talk? <laughs> and we did that for like a year. And as I think trust grew, he saw that I could be a, a valuable contributor to the movie. And that relationship grew from just a, an advisor to, I'm going to do the sound design and the mix on the project as well. Well, 
the great thing about this film actually is none of the scenes are actually very long. Uh, there, there's a Phil Collins feel it in the air. Is that the title? I can feel it coming in the yeah. air tonight. We all know what song we're talking about. I'm not sure what the actual title is. There's a gentleman who drives around New Don York Garcia City. Don Garcia. Don Garcia. He drives around New York City uh, late at night with a very big speaker system in his car, cranking that song yeah. on a loop over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> when I was watching the film, that song felt huge. And visually, we see someone in the car with a microphone in a blimp outside right. capturing it. Is that what you actually use? No. No, okay, I was thinking. <laughs> None of those recordings, while authentic and accurate, that was a mono microphone, and we were trying to convey the sense that that sound was invading every part of New York City. In fact, Sam introduces the scene by announcing that you felt Don coming before you heard Don coming. That's what begat the subwoofer discussion because I told him this scene won't play the way you want it to play on headphones without below 80 cycles. We need a subwoofer. And so that started that conversation. So no, they had made recordings, but all monaural of Don in his car. And everything that you hear of the Phil Collins song is, you know, a lift from the album that I processed in the mix. You did a good job. Thanks. <laughs> that was fun. Did subwoofers fun? They quasi name check you in the film because he talks about how uh, he yeah. reached out to his sound designer friend in yeah, LA or something like that. <laughs> that well, I assumed me. it was you. Yeah, it but, was uh, me. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, did you did you ask not to get name checked or he? It... I tried. Yes. In fact, I asked not even to be in the trailer, and they name checked me in the trailer. They, they thought I would be a draw of some kind, which was deeply embarrassing to me. No, that's not embarrassing at all. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm very, it may not seem like it, but I'm very shy about that stuff. Sam and I have an ongoing argument about being introduced as two-time Academy Award winner Mark Mangini, which I love. And, and I ask everyone not to introduce me that way. I didn't do it. You didn't. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Ah, you don't have to make an edit. <laughs> so two-time Academy Award winning Mark Mangini. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> At the beginning of the film, an extremely beautiful shot of a tree falling. Yeah, I love that shot. It's, it's arresting, the shot, and we get to see it without any sound. Yeah. And I thought that was a really brave choice, having not seen the entire film at that point. And then later on, that shot comes back. There's a reason that it was silent the first time we heard it. Right. Do you want to talk about that? I love that beat. Uh, it was always very clear, you know, Sam was asking the audience to go with him on the old trope, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it make a sound? Just stands as a, a reminder of that funny little thing to ask ourselves that opens the discussion about how does sound work? That's all that really means. And we play it silent, it's beautiful in that silence. But then we get to meet Joanna Fang, who's an extraordinarily talented Foley artist out of New York City, who got to reproduce it in a way that perhaps a general audience would never expect or even know that, oh, that's how they do it? She uses some, you know, audio tape to make the sounds of the leaves, and she twists some old, like, saxophone reeds to make the wood creaking, and drops a stump on a pallet to make the tree fall, and it's all done in these lovely layers, and then when it's all combined, all of a sudden you have verisimilitude, and that's a lovely homage to our entire community. It, it says we, we do these kind of crazy things to reproduce 
the real world, but we're doing, and Joanna says it in a much lovelier way than I ever could, we're trying to make the sound of something that we think we know the sound of, but make it just the bigger, better version of it the way we hear it. She's very well-spoken. She's wonderful. But she's doing all that sort of deep dive story stuff that I think is so important for, you know, people like us to, to be asked. She's doing the, the dig on what's the narrative beat in this scene and how do I tell that story? Not how do I convey that sound, but how do I tell story with sound? So another kind of awesome moment in the film I'm wondering if you know the history of this. There, there's a shot near the beginning of the film, a very old-timey film of someone playing violin in front of a giant cone. I don't know that history. Now you're going to tell me. That is the very first time. Oh, I do know that. That's Edison's first sync sound movie. And we got that track from Walter Murch because he had been searching for it for decades and then synchronized it. Yes, I was I wondering if you yeah. knew that story. I thought you were talking about another shot. I thought you were talking about the John Cage piece of the oh, guys yeah. in the helicopters. Yes. <laughs> oh, But that shot, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but Walter Murch gave a talk about his experience because the sound is longer than the film. There's 17 seconds of film. Mm-hmm but there's two minutes of sound. And he was given this wax cylinder, right. and they asked him to try and figure out what part of it is in the film, but they're not synced properly. Like obviously back, I think it's 1894 or something like that, that it was shot in. So he has to try and figure out, and the cylinder was cracked. So the cylinder had to be, was glued back together. So every half turn, it click, click, click. So he had to clean out the clicks. Didn't know any of that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing talk that he did. Uh, I'll send you the link sometime. Uh, when that shot came up, I was just like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a seminal moment in cinema history. For sure. In fact, sync sound. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was tickled. Sam does his research. He's, a, he's an amazing documentary filmmaker. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any plans to work with him again? I'm hoping to. We're talking about his next project, which he's already shooting and researching, but I can't talk about it. But Fair enough. Other than to say that what I love about Sam in 32 Sounds is that it's all an exploration for him. There are scenes in 32 Sounds that are a function of our communications with each other that wouldn't have existed had he not met me and met another sound designer or a writer. Sam is following a thread, and he, it was more the journey and the exploration and the the exhibition of the ideas that he uncovers in the process of the exploration that's meaningful to him. So same is true with the current film. He's out shooting. He doesn't know what the thread is, but he's capturing, you know, just fascinating stuff that makes you want to, like, see his movies. Well, he actually toured with 32 Sounds, right? He's, he continues to tour to this day. He's been around the globe and will continue to circle the globe with 32 Sounds. So he presents it and... When he does that, which version of the soundtrack are people hearing? It depends on what the venue is and what the, what the sense of the local cinema scene is. If he's in a, a metropolitan area where he's probably got an audience from his Kronos Quartet pieces and, and prior pieces, he probably knows he's going to sell out, and then he brings the live musicians, and that's our full live theater presentation. If it's an unknown municipality, 
he may travel only with the headphone with music, meaning that's such a small theater, the budget maybe didn't exist to bring J.D. Sampson, our composer, performer. We usually travel with at least one other musician to do backing with J.D. Um, Sam might go and only do live voiceover and everything else is playback. So we have- Playback over speakers or headphones? Headphones. Yes. And we have a, we actually have four versions of it. We have a version that plays in the theater on headphones when Sam can't be there for the live narration, but we can rely on a local sound mixer to do the mix from the DCP to the headphone kit. But that's all a completely pre-recorded binaural experience. We have one that is minus voiceover, so Sam can be a live voiceover, and we have one that is um, minus voiceover and music, so that JD can also play live in those venues. And we have a traditional 5.1 and 7.1 theatrical mix to play in a traditional cinema from a DCP. It's a lot of deliveries. <laughs> it was dizzying. We have all these crazy titles for all these different assets. So have you been to, I'm assuming you've been to some of the live performances? Many. Many, many, many. We did one at uh, VIF, uh, Vancouver International Film Festival, that was extraordinary. We, we brought it to San Francisco and did it at the Castro, which was really brilliant. I've seen a number of iterations of it. I presented one here at the AFI Film Festival without Sam or JD, and we just played it over headphones without them. And then I did the Q&A after. So when it goes in a theater with headphones, there's a subwoofer component, though? Yeah, we will leverage the subwoofer from the theater if it's in a cinema. We also do these in lots of you know live theater houses that only usually have a, a left-right uh, reproduction capability, and but we'll still present it in a variety of ways. And often we're schlepping some big subwoofers to some houses because they don't have them. When you go see these screenings... I've never been in a cinema situation where everyone's wearing headphones. It's pretty weird, isn't it? <laughs> I can imagine it being weird. But we think it's a more immersive experience. I'm not arguing that point at all. You think it's a more immersive experience? I do because I'm a huge fan of binaural and ambisonic recording, and I, I used ambisonic recordings for the two-track two and downmixed them to binaural. And I just like the privacy and the kind of exclusivity you get. You get to be in your own little sonic bubble that you don't get in a cinema, which is to say, I'm a real cinema purist. I don't want to hear the popcorn crunching and the unfolding of the cellophane off of the raisinets. That pulls me out for a beat and the, the headphones help kind of cocoon you from having to deal with that. And you get the, the, the full binaural experience at the same time. I agree with you about not wanting to hear the people crunching popcorn and stuff. But part of cinema magic for me is when the whole room oh, yeah. jumps at the same time yeah. and screams yeah. or when one laugh rolls yeah. through the entire yeah. room. Does the headphones affect that? Oh, it absolutely does. Although I have noticed that in terms of audience engagement, it doesn't matter how we show it, the, the Donna Summers, the get up and dance beat, we still get a great raucous, take off the headphones, get up and boogie down front, put your hand on the subwoofer. We still get a pretty remarkable reaction from that. But I, like you, love the communal experience. And I think especially in the laugh moments, laughter is so much more infectious when you hear it outside of the headphones. And I think we arguably get better laughs in the non-headphone versions. But I think we might get more emotional engagement with the headphones. I would think so. There's a scene where a gentleman listens to a message from himself. And I can imagine that being 
really amazing. Not not that that is, moment is even in binaural, but that is a it kind isn't. of a private moment. Yeah. That if you feel like you're in your own world with the headphones and not the the lack of community, maybe would work to its advantage there. That's one of the most moving parts for me because I know one of those is a cassette. A recording of the director's deceased brother. You know, he was talking to friends and he mentions this in the voiceover that one of his dear friends challenged him by saying, Sam, you're doing this deep dive into sound because you're avoiding listening to those tapes, aren't you? I think that pushed Sam to include that beat. That happened before he put that beat in the movie. Mm -hmm. Such a personal statement for him and for all of us. I heard that uh, Gary Rydstrom was doing this at... Um, his lectures and seminars, and I started doing it as well, that he would ask an audience if they had the option to remember a deceased loved one with a photograph or a sound, which would they choose? And it was only, a, it was a binary choice. And most audiences would usually choose the audio recording because there is something deeply personal and visceral about an audio recording that perhaps something a visual media doesn't have. And that, that speaks to this idea that he, was, he had these tapes that he hadn't listened to, but he, he, he really needed to dig in. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment in the film. Uh, I, I definitely cried during that scene. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, as yeah. I get older, I find I'm crying more and more at movies. I used to never cry at movies, and now I'm uh, I'm doing it a lot more. It's interesting. I cried in ET, not only after <laughs> I walked out of the theater, but and that that film will still elicit that same response in me, and so will John Williams' score. There's a couple of cues, especially when with the cue that's I think called Goodbye, where they're in the space, the the forest, and the ship has landed, and he's Elliot saying goodbye to ET, and he walks up the ramp, and there's this gorgeous orchestral stuff that just destroys me. Yeah, it's an amazing film. Well, that was a lot of fun. I have to say a big thanks to Mark for inviting me into his workspace and taking the time to have this talk. This is maybe my fourth or fifth time interviewing Mark, but it was my first time in person. He has a great energy that makes interviewing him very easy. Thanks to the folks at Formosa for making this happen. This episode was volunteer edited by Andrew Murray, who is really great to work with. Originally from Edinburgh, Scotland, working in film and video games as a sound designer, Andrew recently screened their first short film, Moth, at Cinemagic's Film Festival. Andrew can be found on socials at Andrew MR Audio. Thanks again, Andrew. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will feature a talk with Johnny Byrne about his work on the new wonderful film, Poor Things. On behalf of Mark Mangini, my name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.